Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics? They talk, we listen. My guest today became an international marketing manager at the age of 30, managing director at 38, chairman of the board at 42, and has sat on 20 boards in her career. She's currently the chair of a number of boards for some well-known retail and manufacturing organizations to include my favorite furniture shop, Bow Concept. This is the new series on Heads Talk, the retail series, where we talk to executive leaders in this space about the current topics of the day. But before we get into that, here is a brief message. My name's Chrissy. I'm co-founder and chief mixologist at Bird and Blend Tico. I know Elaine loves our tea and makes weekly recommendations to you so you can enjoy whilst listening to this fabulous podcast. We're an eco-conscious, independent, people-focused and award-winning tea mixology company on a mission to spread happiness and reimagine tea. We now have 14 stores across the UK and over 100 blends to choose from, so there's something for everyone. From our traditional Great British Cuppa and Builder's Breakfast Brew to fun flavours like chocolate digestives, rhubarb and custard and strawberry lemonade, you'll be sure to discover the perfect cuppa for you. Check us out online. You can take our tea matching quiz. It's www.birdandblendtea.com and it'll find the right tea for you. Or please do pop into one of our stores and meet some of the team and they will help you out. Thanks for your time and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Let's talk podcast with your host Elaine Pringle Schwitter. I am Giselle Riffer, the creator of De Lance, a unique watch for women, a symbol of recognition for women who want to make the world a better place for all. Delance.com Let's talk podcast with your host Elaine Pringle Schwitter. Sana Suvanto Harsai is the chair of a number of listed and non-listed Nordic companies to include Bo Concept. She has been voted Finland's most influential businesswoman for the past five years and has received the Order of the White Rose of Finland from the President of Finland in 2021. Sana experience spans a number of countries and has lived and worked in Switzerland, Germany, Sweden and predominantly in Finland and Denmark where she currently resides a business and marketing strategist and a forthright individual on the current Ukrainian war. She's not only a member of the Danish-Ukrainian committee supporting Ukrainian military in Denmark, but she recently published an article which we will share in the episode description. Academically, Sanna has a Bachelor of Science in Strategic and Marketing Management from Lund University in Sweden. Today, we will talk about the effects the war has had on the retail industry and I'm looking forward to this discussion. Let's begin this series on Heads Talk. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Sana to Heads Talk. Many thanks for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me. Good to be here. Thank you. Um, once again, thrilled to have you on this new retail series of Heads Talk. Um, I deliberately didn't go into 
detail about your chairmanship um, of the various organisations in the introduction, other than, of course, my favourite furniture shop, which I've mentioned <laughs> probably a couple of times. Just want to get that out there. <laughs> um, but, but I'd like for you to tell my listeners about your role as the chairman of the board for the various retail and manufacturing organisations. Uh, as you said, uh, and thank you for the very flattering introduction, uh, as you said, I work with a, quite a few different consumer uh, type of companies, including a lot of retailers. And, and, and uh, as you said, one of the things that I've been sharing is a Danish uh, retailer, the Danes would, would know, and up internationally called Babysam, which has been in a fantastic trip from a voluntary chain to now pure Omnicom. Or mm. omni-channel chain, maybe biggest the omni-channel chain there is. I work with a lot of consumer goods companies uh, with the consumers at the end of there. I've been on the um, board of SIS, which for quite a few people would know, but that's also a consumer business. When it comes to retail, I think the interesting thing is that until uh, one and a half years ago, I've chaired a, a company called Footway, which is a pure player e-com. I work with today, I'm a chairman of a listed company, which is called TCM in Denmark, which is a kitchen business, again, very much a retail entity. Uh, and I work with, as I said, Fastman Consumer Goods. Another thing that I would like to add, add also, I work with the, I'm a chairing of Finis Posti, which on the other hand is handling a lot of the sending of the e-com or omnichannel businesses, which gives them a quite interesting other aspect to the retail omnicom mm. ever-changing environment. And mm. of course, book concept, which uh, which uh, very many ways it is also my favorite, not just on the furniture, but very many <laughs> other ways. I, 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 it is a very fantastic, interesting company which I'm sure we'll talk more about, which has really, uh, on its global presence, uh, really had quite exciting couple of last years, let's put it this way. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And, you know, when I did my research and I looked at information about you, I'm so impressed by the sheer number of organisations that you chair. And um, not to mention that you started at the age of 42, so an amazing uh, achievement, and I just want to put that out there. Let's concentrate on one chair position in particular, that is the position of the chairman of um, Bo Concept, chairman of the board for Bo Concept. How do you work with the, the, the CEO and the other executive C-suites of the organization? And, and what are your joint objectives here? I, th I think the, the, the um, as with any company, but specifically in Bull Concept, I mean, Bull Concept, maybe I'll give you very little and, you, and your readers, they might, or listeners, they might not be as, as well as you are in the Bull Concept, but Bull Concept is effectively uh, in six, above 60 countries on the global So our global presence is, is very big and also in the recent years that has had some uh, interesting effects. But in that kind of organization, which is franchise driven, so we also have a lot of their own business owners as a part of the key target group. For me and my position for the management is really to ensure that the company has the best global strategy that works in every each local little city where the book concept have to make their win and their presence noticed. So it's this global but truly local strategy that I have been uh, helping the management to put in a place because strategy needs to come from management it is really my joint kind of as a coach as an advisor as a putting the structure putting the playing field together with the owners so they understand what to do but maybe the most important thing for any board uh, and any chair is to ensure you have the right team and this is something we've been developing for, for book concept and at the moment the management team and the team coming under the management team is really something that I'm very very proud of and that's actually the biggest work that I do as a chair in any company, which is working with the management 
uh, outside of the meetings. It's mm -hmm. not the board meetings where the big me big uh, events happen. It's outside the meetings. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I've already put my bias um, towards bone mm -hmm. concept out there, but um, how does this role differ, if at all, to any of the other organizations that you chair? I, I tend to say when I, I'm, uh, as, as you know, I'm also teaching in the corporate co corporate governance faculty in Copenhagen Business School. Mm -hmm. And I tend to say that the biggest difference with the companies, it's not so much which interest they are on, it's actually the ownership. And Book Concept at the moment is owned by a private equity, which is, is a very engaged owner type. So, so let's put that one, but let's not go too much into that point. I think in Book Concept, if you then compare to similar ownerships, uh, is really a difference of the fact that it is a global business. I mean, I, I keep joking to, to, to my friend who's the chair of IKEA, Ikea that yes, you're a so much bigger than we are, but we are still in the more countries than you are. When you get to 60 plus countries, let me know. And that really, uh, in, in the world as it is today, it's, it's quite rare. People talk about global companies, but not a lot of global companies actually are present in that many countries. Mm. Then the other thing is, which I mentioned, it's a franchise company, which means in every country or every city, the owner owns one to usually two, four, five uh, stores, mm -hmm. which then they have, a, you know, franchisees have the fantastic thing that they're very engaged on their business. So, you know, it's not just, they are like the, the organization of their own. So in book concept, you have to take in consideration the fact that you are a very big global company, but each and it, which has in itself several small companies with a very passionate and driven owners. And not very many companies have that. And that puts Book Concept in a very specific case. Then when you add the fact that we are working in a design environment, we're talking about people's home, we're talking about the sofa they like to eat every, sit every day or their dining table, then you add the whole aspect that you have to have a good design that works. So, so in, in that context, it comes a very complex and in a very maybe more complex than a if there is a normal normal company, but also much more exciting because there is all these varieties of things. And then if we look at the challenges of past years, how do you ensure you get to consumers in different ways that aren't just the old way of a brick and mortar one mm -hmm. store in one city? Mm -hmm. Yes, and, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk um, in greater detail later on about sort of it's kind of the future of retail, um, which you sort of touched upon. Um, in my research, you wrote about this, and I'd like to, mm -hmm. to um, reiterate what you consider to be a healthy chair and CEO working relationship. Um, I read that. This was away from the article. It was somewhere else, I think, I read that when you mm -hmm. talked about that. What is that? What, what do you consider a healthy chair and CEO working relationship? This is a, it is one of the most closest relationships. I mean, I've worked, as you mentioned, in several facing organizations. Still, this kind of relationship is maybe the closest relationship I've ever experienced in anywhere else. And why is it a good and when is it good and, and why is it so close? Mm -hmm. The CEO, as many CEOs will know, is the most lonely place in the world. <laughs> You're sitting on top of organization. Yes, you can talk with some of your colleagues, but very often, you have very few people, you really can have a good session of trying to find the different solutions for a very big 
usually also people problems. And there you need to have somebody who you can lean on. And that's the chair's role. The chair's role in that sense is like, if you think about work with the airline industry, it, it, the, 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 the plane has two pilots. It has one pilot actually flies, and that's mm. not the captain, by the way. And it has the other pilot sitting on the side. And, and the way the relationship needs to work is you are like in a team on sitting on the front of the plane uh, and, and trying to get it together. But it is the CEO who drives the plane or, or flies the plane and flies mm -hmm. the company. But you have to be there to support. In order that to be healthy, the first thing that needs to happen, you have to have a chair that understands the business. I do not understand the chairs who kind of say, oh, I've done this so many times. I have my book and you know every company is the same. You really need to understand the company. If you understand the company as the chair, you can be the help the CEO needs. On the other hand, the CEO is the captain, is the one who's flying the, 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 the company. You cannot go and go behind. Everything has to happen like behind the lines. Mm -hmm. It is the CEO who represents the company outside and inside. But you are like the big supporting factor, the one who champions, the one who's challenges, and the one who motivates the CEO. And you have to develop the CEO in a different ways. And the relationship has to be so close that if the CEO has a problem at home, you know, very many we have, we have a life outside the company, he is so close to this chair that he can say, listen, I'm having a bit of a situation at home. Don't have to go in details. But you feel so close that you think it's okay to say that. Because if somebody has a problem at home, it will affect their work. On the other hand, you can't get so close that you are, you know, kind of the new mother of, or, or, or sister of, of the person, because one beautiful day you might need to be in the case as a chair that you have to say farewell. So yeah. I tend to say this way, I'm friend with my chairs, but I don't, I'm not their Instagram friend. I'm not their Facebook friend. I'm not, you know, I understand them, but I'm not their too close friend because in the end I have to be in the position that if the company strategy requires it, I need to be able to say farewell to this person and say it in a way that that isn't affecting it. But it's this having the same understanding and then being the coach, the partner, you can fly your ideas mm -hmm. and being the support for the CEO when it's really needed. Mm -hmm. But you, you, you wear some really sort of complicated, diverse types of hats in order to ensure that this relationship works quite well. So uh, uh, that's very true. Very true. And then you think about chair. There's usually also owner. I've been in some companies where you have an entrepreneur when I was the chair and then you have a CEO. Mm -hmm. Honestly, sometimes I felt more like a psychologist <laughs> or relationship <laughs> manager yeah. because yeah. you have to manage the different also also kind of um, stakeholder values on there. So, mm -hmm. so it is like being a spider in, in, in the net, but mm -hmm. it is about staying in the background. It is about having an influence, but it is about staying in the background. Mm -hmm. and, and, and this motivational, challenging, uh, when there's if there's a performance issue uh, then you go into there when you see your CEO you get to know them so well so you know where they need more support you know where they don't need support mm -hmm. it is a very close relationship it, it, it is indeed and, and, and thank you for that sort of a elaborate um, description of it let's move on to, to, to the next bit it's all about the pandemic here this one and um, hopefully we're nearing the end um, at least the worst bit of the pandemic I'd, I'd just like to know how was it for Bow Concept during the peak of the outbreak and, and where is it today? I think the, the uh, you know, as everybody in every business, when it initially is like 
we, we were going in a blind. I think the one thing that Bukons was very, very special, in my opinion, because mm -hmm. we are this multinational, we work with different countries. We've also been quite a few of the Asian flu. It was the company, just give you a very little example, that in early January started to have a hygienic dispensers in the headquarters because we were used to that with the Asian, uh, with the flus right. and, the, and, the, and, the, and chicken flus and whatever. That there is a global company, these situations happen. So on that healthcare kind of taking care of the people part, Book Concept had an edge versus very many of the other European companies. Mm -hmm. That's one part. But when it initially hit, you know, we did, I'm a big believer of scenario management. I, 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 that is my tool number one when I work. So when it hit, we did, as we always work with three scenarios during the year. We did another three scenarios. We presented to the stakeholders. We got to go ahead. What we're going to do? What are the different scenarios? We follow them closely because it's also a money question. We didn't know how well or badly it could be. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I, I talked about these store owners of the franchisees in the countries. That is actually a blessing in the sky because we could flexible be flexible to every single country, to every single region. What were the rules? We didn't have to do a global rules that says we close office or we do this and do that. Because we have these own owners, they could also always follow their own thing. So the big thing we did as a headquarter is to follow up who's open, who's closed. Mm -hmm. When that is said, everybody was closed in one point of time. Mm. Book concept used, it's the, my favorite thing, one of my favorite things from Churchill, never waste a good crisis type of comment. We, we really took that one and we did a huge leap. We've been preparing these franchisees for a digital leap. Uh -huh. The franchisees are not always the most modern things. We did a huge leap. So within the first six weeks, we had established a way of doing digital sales via mobile telephones. Because book concept, big concept is having a design advisor. So suddenly these design advisors who normally would advise in the store or come to home visit and advise at home, they could do all that advising. And suddenly people opened their homes. They would go around with their mobile phones and say, look at my living room. This is how it looks like. Oh, great. Then they talked on the phone, made the design uh, proposal and send it to consumers. So actually it was more effective way for selling. And we got my, much more quicker closer to the consumer uh, mm -hmm. than we had before. So mm -hmm. it turned into be a huge advantage for us because Mm. then when the stores eventually again started to, uh, uh, yeah. opening, we had the ready-made thing. People just came in to have a last touch. Oh, it's this green or that blue. You know, this is how it looks reality. And then the orders were in. So, mm. so um, uh, or even we send samples to hope. So for us, this turned to be a big opportunity to make the huge digital leap because we were ready and we moved just very quickly. That, that's fascinating. What was the the digital landscape at the time prior to to COVID? Was both concept on the the edge of doing something, or it was not really thought of in a great detail? I mean, we, we have always been doing it by our stores, so so our ecom has not been, and we are not because we have this advice part. We we don't even push too much the ecom sales. So, mm -hmm. but to answer your questions, were we in the forehead? Not at all. Mm. <laughs> not at all but mm. but the whole thing was just saying how do you do this and using the mobile phone and having that digital thing it actually allowed us to take the leap quicker because we hadn't put a fixed system we were not trying to push it to this web we were trying to still keep the human contact mm -hmm. and in the corona times looking afterwards the human contact was the big selling effect you just had to find out how you do the human contact 
with a distance. And, and that's where the mobile phones with, with the cameras allowed us to do it. So we had this, we've done these tests. And, and this, I think, is a great learning. But because we had quite a few tests going on, we took a couple of the tests and just pushed them forward. So mm -hmm. if you just go with one route in this kind of situation, we might have ended on the black, you know, dead end. Mm -hmm. But because we had a, quite a few different ways, and, and countries are different. Uh, you know, the Scandinavia is huge digital, no problem here. Go some of the countries we have in Africa or Central America, or, or to be perfectly honest, even in US certain states, the digitalization isn't where we think it is. Mm -hmm. so, so, so adding this human, bit more low-tech aspect on the way we did things actually managed us to, to, to do really well. Yes, because I know all the different countries would, in terms of digitalization is developed at different levels, but the mobile phone pretty much across the globe, everyone, tends Absolutely. to have and, and I can understand your solution through that being quite ingenious and um, how would you say the pandemic has permanently affected retail going forward? I, I think that I'm, I'm very fascinated what's happening at the moment um, you know uh, kind of sometime during the corona of course the big econ players had a huge sleep and, 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 and the business grew exponentially what you're seeing at the moment, and I can I can track this from my positive experience for numbers, um, the e-com has been having a dead time since January this year, and and they are they are declining first time of of, of their history. And you suddenly every day you open a business magazine, there's a one e-com retail after other saying, "Whoops, we need to make money," because they got used to this just grow grow grow, and we will do money one day. And and the situation, the volumes are down, the e-com is down, and people are going back to online, uh, back to on how is they brick and mortar retail stores. However, what they really want to do, they want to go order the thing from the net, so they are sure it's in the in the in the stores. So this click and collect or click and you know or reserve type of things is really going. I also work with a retailer, something in Finland, which is called Motonet, which is basically, as you can say, it's a car thing and, 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 and a, a very male concept with everything from garden to cars and, and, and mm -hmm. things. What you see also there, as we see in our baby business, people want to go to stores, but they want to make sure the product is there. So click and collect is growing. And that is e-com in terms of where it starts from, but it's a retail where it ends. And it right. suddenly gives the retail a possibility to do advising and selling more and selling accessories and whatever it is when it gets there. And this move has been very rapid. Uh, and, and so consumers want to combine these two. Um, okay. It's not either or. It's, it's, it's the winners, I think, the future, which I said before the corona, are the one who can do both perfectly. Okay. It's not so, either or. So it's, it's a hybrid operation that seems to be the, the winner here. Okay. Um, now on to, on to, now onto a topic that um, you not only show great interest in, but as mentioned in the introduction, you are a member of the Danish Ukrainian Committee supporting Ukrainian military in Denmark. You have written about the impact um, of the conflict. And once again, listeners, it's a fascinating read. Um, I do urge you to read it if um, Sana is um, happy for us to share it. Um, for my listeners, I'd like um, you to talk about how the current war has impacted the various companies um, that you chair. It would be great if you could um, provide them with a, sort of a couple examples of the impact. 
Yeah, I, I think I think this this uh, this war has impacted all all, all companies globally, <laughs> but specifically European. And and here it is a big difference if a company has an operations in actually what I would call the three affected countries that is uh, Ukraine, uh, uh, Russia, and 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 um, uh, Belarus. Um, and uh, if the company has operations on that ones, uh, this has been a major topic because the first thing the companies need to make a decision very quickly, mm-hmm. what's our, what are our values? Based on our values, are we going to operate on Russia, Belarusia, uh, Ukraine kind of came to a standstill by definition because the break, war broke out. But value one sense how are we going to support the ukrainian business which might close and what are we going to do if we have an operations in russia mm-hmm. and um i've been surprised personally how difficult sometimes this question this, this discussion discussions have been mm-hmm. what i'm very happy to say that at least in the companies and i'm involved and then these are a close 10 uh, on those that have had a russian business in the end decision has been very easy uh, we have our values, uh, and the values say we cannot operate a country which is attacking another country, and and we have more or less left uh, left Russia or are leaving it. Mm-hmm. Now there comes the second topic. Uh, I have in a company where we had a factory both in Ukraine. This is not full concept. <laughs> a factory <laughs> had a, a we had we had a uh, we have factory both in Ukraine and Russia, and the Ukrainian factory closed because the specifically males working in the factory had to go to war. Mm-hmm. We're still paying the salaries. We're still operating the factory now. One third of the operations, which are which are females, are still operating it because they need their salaries. We're still paying the salaries for those who are on our payroll but mm-hmm. are in the military operations. Mm-hmm. And the Russian factory we closed. However, the Russians' way of doing this was that there was a very quick emergent uh, approach from the Russian authorities. Which basically said to us, if you can close, if you're not going to operate the, uh, the the factory, you see there's a technical bankruptcy. If it's a technical bankruptcy, your management in Russia will go to jail. And this, and again, you have to find a solution. And what you see now is the reason most of the, these type of companies are selling, as we are as well, selling the operator operations either for the management of somebody else is in order to avoid to get out of there. You had to operate for the time you own it and get out of there and, and sell the company out by taking also care of the management so they don't end up uh, in the Russian factories. So it is a very complex situation and that has taken a buyers? huge amount of time for management. But are you getting buyers? I mean, if you're doing this, I assume other comp- corporations are doing that. Are they getting buyers to buy these corporations? Yeah, there are a lot of, there are buyers. I mean, of course, the prices are not what you would buy normally, but you've tried to find a system. And some of the limiting factors is also you have to have a legal, so you have to make sure, you know, do you get any money out of the country? How do you do? How do you contact? You usually have a, you know, the IT systems, how do you cut the IT systems with the operation? So it's it's a very complex, in, in normal world, if you sell part of your business, it's not an easy thing. Yeah. You usually yeah. do a deals where you help for a year. In a situation where the company is, a, the country is in a war, the company cannot support it. So so um, you can see Finland, which is my other other home country, yes. they're the first, well, the first companies have now closed and, and they're closing it. And then you have these deals. So yes, you're going to have the sellers. Are you going to get the price that the business is worth? Of course not. Mm. Of course not. You, you're going you're gonna to sell it for penny in order to, to, to get yeah. it going and, and get it off. Sometimes okay. the management, there's still Russians who want to buy it, competitors, whatever. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it's a very it's another yeah. it's a full time job, 
on top of the normal <laughs> job that the management has to handle. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can see that. I can see the complexities um, of, of what you say because when you you, you began um, delivering the answer to this, you said it's a complex solution, and anyone and a layman would think, how is it complex? You just get out, you move out. You know, you you take a stand in one way, but there are people's lives, there are nuances to all of this and there are laws and you know ramifications. And so I can understand why it was such a complicated um, decision for you. Um, I, think, I think, that, may, may I add, in sort of value perspective, I think the decision, you have to say you have to get out. And, and then, for example, in the case I'm talking, we closed the factory, so we don't manufacture anything. But then the people come and say, listen, we're gonna put your people in jail. You've been working yeah. with people, individual 20 years, if the, if the cost of that one is for you to manufacture in the company another two months, you do that. Retail is easier because retail, you can just close the doors, you mm -hmm. know, and, and, and that I really appreciate the huge amount of retailers mm -hmm. have done it. They literally closed the doors, left. Brilliant. Brilliant work for many retailers on that one. Uh, when you have a manufacturing, it's a bit more complicated of getting out of the country uh, mm -hmm. in order to also stay true to your values and take care of your employees. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also, for, for those that may not necessarily have um, uh, manufacturing plants within the Russia, there's additionally, there's the, the broken supply chain, you know, there's a rising interest yeah. rate, there's a shortage of raw materials, um, wheat being the obvious example. Where do you see the, the Nordic-Russian um, business relationship now and, and in the near future? Actually, how was it before the war first? And then what are your predictions on going forward? I think the Nordics, being a small countries, have always had a quite a few big, I mean, sizable international operations because we don't have enough people living in the Nordics. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and also in Russia, because, uh, you know, for Finland, it was a neighboring country. We always had a trade with them. The Danes are very international. They trade in Asia. They trade in Russia. They have factories in Russia. Big the Danish businesses have a huge factories and an effect in Russia. Carlsbergs, uh, to be named, who have decided to, to get rid of their... Um, so, so there's been a very much of, uh, you know, uh, business going on in there. And, and I think for very many years after the Berlin Wall, people believed that like the other Eastern Bloc countries, you know, Russians are just a bit more slower. They will come there. It will mm -hmm. be a Western economy. You know, they will be like where Poland is today. It just takes slightly more time. I think this was the mindset. This was the wish. This was what we wanted to happen. Um, and I think that somehow these things changed quite radically also in the early 2000s, but because the wish of wanting mm. Russia to follow the others was so burning, we slept through. I mean, we slept like, a, I think it's a, you know, we, we slept this one. We slept even what happened in 2014. We should have reacted earlier. But there was this huge wish and belief that the Russians will do as the rest of the Eastern Europeans have. Um, so, so, so there was a good relationship. There's a lot of businesses, small and big, who have a good connections uh, in Russia. And there was also this belief that if the Western economy, the Western business, the retailers, if we move to Russia, we will kind of internally Europeize or make it the Western European culture by adding these things, which I believe was right thing to do. You know, they get exposed, same things. They saw what it is. We get common talks, whether it's about McDonald's or in Samaritan or whatever, we had some similarities. I think it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, I think what has happened now, uh, you know, what I see in the Nordics, we've been reminded about the Second World War so radically that I think it takes another generation before we get where we were uh, before the war started. 
I, I wish it will take shorter. Uh, I, I truly wish. Uh, but uh, I think that this had kind of been so bad. You know, the fact that when you make a mistake, when you think, oh, shit, I should have seen it earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you do it, it's so big reminder. You don't want to repeat it. So, you know, you, investing money in Russia from north of Europe uh, or anywhere in Europe, I think in for quite a few years, is not going to be a topic that big, uh, bigger corporations do. Uh, it's just simply too risky. Mm. So it's kind of reminded you of it, well, reminded the, the Nordic countries of a time that they almost forgot, so to speak. Absolutely. I mean, you have to remember the, the, the Norwegians and, and, and Danes lost their independence, Finns were in the war, Swedes were in the middle, kind of saved on all that one. But I think I can see Denmark and Finland, it's really kind of boost the, the memories back and, yes, the, yes. and you see the old grannies coming in yes. and say, that's what we always said, don't trust to them. And, 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 and hold that kind of emotional thing. Um, but it's also money. I mean, you know, it has to be, it is, it is now very risky to invest money in, in that kind of countries. And I think generally looking globally, people will question twice what risks do we dare to take in the countries that might have a political uh, instability. Mm-hmm. And we have to remember most of the countries in global are, are run by, are non-democratic. So, mm-hmm. so I think there would be a wider aspect of that one also, looking where do you invest and what kind of returns of investments do you want to have if you put them in a risky country? Mm-hmm. Right, okay. Let, let's go into detail uh, about something you wrote in your article that fascinated me and I'd like you to expand on. Um, it ties in what we've just talked about. Um, um, this is a quote from the article um, when you talked about the situation with Russia and Ukraine and, and the current drive for sustainable solutions. Uh, and the mm. quote is, use this, which is the current conflict, as an opportunity to kill two birds with one stone. What do you mean by this? Uh, and secondly, um, in your role as chair of the board to various organizations, how are you helping and ensuring that these organizations meet the ESG targets expected given the difficulty in the current um, crisis? Uh, yes, I, I, I think this, as again, there's always an opportunity in all, all, all areas. Uh, 75% or above 70% of global um, CO2 issues are based on energy. So everything is based on energy. If we want to solve everything, if we want to solve anything on the global CO2 and, and, and save this planet, we have to fix the energy question. Here, we, uh, you know, the European was going on the route that the uh, Russian gas was accepted as a green energy. That's dead now. Mm-hmm. So we, this is now forcing Europe to take a huge leap to find different energy methods. And, and, and it will hopefully, and, and it will run, because Europe doesn't have its own energy. We don't have oil in the ground too much uh, in, the, in the European places. We have to find some other more sustainable energy that we can produce and, and have in the Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this one is going to be a huge booster. Instead of taking, yes, we'll accept the Russian gas as a green, as the EU is going to, uh, now we just have to say, okay, we need to find, yes, in short term, solve that issue, but we need to accelerate and we have to go quicker with the green energy in order to be self-sufficient on energy. And I think it's a fantastic opportunity. And, 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 and I hope a lot of countries realize this one. Oh, we have to be more self-sufficient on energy and use that to look what green energy methods are best 
uh, appropriate for these countries. And and I already see this. Um, the the uh, mm-hmm. EU EU team was in Denmark looking at the wind at the moment. So so this is a fantastic opportunity. Let's take it. The crisis have done this crisis. It's about all about energy. So let's solve it in a possible green way. So I really hope that this this can help on that. To the other question, how how do I as a chair work with ESG? I am a very, first of all, I'm very, very happy that actually my first job, my very first job after university had to do with a, with a kind of a cradle to grave, uh, two different products, uh, in environmental aspects, which I'm very thankful today. That was 30 years ago nearly, uh, which I'm very, very thankful today <laughs> because, um, because it really learned me what ESG is about. It's about cradle to grave. It's not about a certain point on that one. And, and I've also been very happy to be able to work with some companies, for example, the, uh, the uh, Anora, which is the Finnish alcohol company, which been, I think, twice uh, or at least once uh, as the greenest uh, alcohol manufacturer on earth. We have a factory that has a 0.02 spill, which means everything we use, we recycle um, and, and to, a, to a level which is quite exceptional. I've worked with that company 10 years. So I can, I've also seen ESG in action. I've seen what the environmental things do for the companies way of thinking, the fact that you you can always improve. And this for me is maybe the ESG. There's a lot of companies and countries now putting a zero-sum targets. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid that's a sleeping pillow. I'm much more in the camp. I want to have targets. Yes, where's the long-term goal? That's the strategy. But then mm-hmm. break it to year on year. Mm-hmm. And in all the country companies I'm chairing, uh, we have on the management bonus, on the short-term bonus SDI, we have an S. ESG, S, the social responsibility target, usually about either employee uh, employee satisfaction or uh, workplace. If there's a factory, they could be accident, workplace accidents or mm-hmm. sick leaves. Mm-hmm. And in the LPI, which is a long-term incentive plans in all the companies, we have an environmental target. And the target is a year-on-year target in most of the cases. So it's a continuous improvement target. So it's not that for one day will be zero, but it's about how do you improve for today, tomorrow? And that's where the chairs and the boards play a role. By incentive systems, uh, you will, using a nice, in a nice way, word force and ensure the organization will have an eyes on there. Because if you have 20% of your short-term bonuses or up to 20% or up to 20% of your long-term intensive things, the people won't get their bonuses if they don't work with it. It is a quite interesting carrot and a stick in one go. Mm. And, you know, just going back to the first point of what you said, it made me think of something in terms of the conversations that you were having. I know when we were in the midst of the the pandemic, it made people think about sustainable solutions and ESG targets more so than prior to that. And I thought with the outbreak of the Ukrainian war, people will probably park that and put that to one side and concentrate on what's going on there in terms of food crisis and stuff like that. But you're saying the conversations are getting louder, bigger and more frequent about sustainable solutions as a result of the war. That's what you're saying really, isn't it? No, yeah, I I think the war is helping. I I don't think it's, I think the the whole energy part, which is so big that no single company can solve it by itself. So for the energy part, the war is definitely helping because now you have a, you know, you have to move away for Europe Yes. from the gas you just have to you have to find a solution and then going to another bad solution is not really something that the population will appreciate mm. so so there is a clear force positive and negative again carrot and the stick to move away from the russian gas to a energy support which is more 
sustainable. So that's great because that's something the countries have to fix. A single company can only do so much. Mm -hmm. Then there is the other part, which is that the um, specifically the investors, and I would here really like to think and thank the investors. The investors, the investment society has been on the ESG now for several years. It's not mm -hmm. so much the consumers yet. It's more the investors. And that, I think, feedback coming to the boards is great because that will then ensure the boards make sure that the strategy also covers an executable SGA uh, targets, not just something wannabe yeah. uh, values, but actually something that really starts to happen. And that needs a huge investment, which, 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 which is my big worry at the moment with a possible downturn looming, that, that uh, yeah. uh, the investments, um, I saw a number, which I can't remember, it was so many trillion, trillion uh, mm -hmm. dollars that, that I didn't think about what really is needed for companies to become uh, more environmental. So, so but that's maybe a worry. But, but I uh, again, I said 70% is, is energy. So if, if we can move on the energy, uh, at least in Europe, it's great, but um, it has yeah. to happen everywhere. The environment is not, yes. it has no borders. Yes, exactly. You've only got the one planet. And, and, and I suppose that is the, you know, the sort of silver lining on such a tragic um, event unfolding. Um, let's, let's end this episode of Heads Talk with this question that will be asked to all the guests in this, in this new series. Actually, it's a, it's a similar question to the, the guests from the previous series, but for the retail sector. Okay, what is the solution that you think is yet to be developed but sits within the retail world once available? Oh, that is a wide question uh, in that sense. I think, I, I think that would really, what retail is all about, and if you look at retail for when it started hundreds of years ago, it's about people meeting people. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and retail that is automated, you know, there is a, you see a lot of retailers now in the food ridden grocery going in to a automatic, you know, um, uh, where you basically check out uh, without a human thing. That's yeah. great. Works well with a, specifically with a value and, and, and gives pe people freedom to choose that. But if you look at the retail, uh, if you, outside of food, outside of grocery retail, I think that what really <laughs> is that how do we want the human interaction to be in the retail? Because if there is no human interaction in the retail, why would you go to a retail store? And so, so for me, it's, it's, it's not so much about, it could be a digital solution, but for me, it's a, more about how do you in the world where people sources are going, you know, we kind of have lack of people in Europe. How do you ensure people uh, choose to go to the retail way and, and work on the retail? And how do you have this human interaction with the retailer and, and the customer that, that makes the customer to want to come back? You mm -hmm. see a huge uprise of the small stores again, going completely down right. Mops and pops, little cute little stores mm -hmm. because people want to go there to have the interaction with the person and with the, 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 the products. So, so you see kind of a reverse there. So I think big change specifically need to say, how do you become more human? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and for the small parts, I, I think that you will see, see a, a growth of these small moms and pop stores where people go because they like the person and like the people, they, they, they like the relationship. Mm -hmm. So for me, it is, isn't that one. So that's for the human, that's the big thing. If there's one small thing, we have to increase convenience in all kinds of things and all the digital solutions drive convenience. But that's a different story. For me, the big issue is how do you 
make the human interaction and how do you make also the human interaction so it comes home? How can you do an advice? You bought something very simple, but you want to have advice. How do you bring this digital human connection to your product also in retail? Mm. I was thinking more based on what you said, perhaps the design advisors will have a greater role in ensuring this human interaction and bringing people into the various stores. Um, that's, that's an example. If, if no, I but that, that is correct. I have, to, I have to say that to end on this on a book concept note in that sense, that is exactly why book concept is winning so much because we have this digital advisor, we have this human person who does and helps you with your home your mm-hmm. personalized things. Mm-hmm. That is the winning concept. That's why we win globally. Everybody, everywhere wants to have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 and it's made for you. It's, and that's what I think retail in general. So you're right. It's, it's a very good conclusion from you. It's mm-hmm. the advising digital human aspects that the winning, tomorrow's winning retailers have to bring into their, into their concepts. Yeah, in, indeed. Sana Savanto Harsai, many thanks for your time and insights. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepinkle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders, and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk Podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.